Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon. I'm Sophie Rayworth. I'm a journalist and newsreader at the BBC, and it is a great pleasure to welcome you all to today's special RSA online event. I do hope that those of you who are watching will take the chance to join the conversation in the YouTube chat here or on Twitter, which you can do using the hashtag RSA change. Now, I'm delighted for many reasons to have the chance today to talk to Michael Rosen. He is, of course, a much-loved figure in children's literature, known for his work as a poet and performer. He visits schools with his one-man show to inspire children with his love for books and poetry. He is professor of children's literature at Goldsmiths University of London and former children's laureate. It is also a great pleasure for me to honor, to introduce him here today because almost a year to the day I was sitting right here in my kitchen we were two weeks into lockdown and I read on Radio 4's Today program his poem These Are the Hands which he wrote in celebration of the NHS's 60th anniversary but at that very moment Michael himself was in hospital with Covid being treated and he was desperately ill. I remember that moment vividly it was, it was eerie, it was an extraordinary moment in time, and the response to it was extraordinary. The, the viewers, the listeners who, who got in touch with us, and so much concern about Michael's condition, and nobody knew how he was at that moment. Well, Michael, I'm delighted to say, joins me now. You were very, very ill, weren't you? Yes, Sophie, and uh, I knew nothing at all about it because I was in what they call an induced coma. Um, yes, I was uh, in intensive care uh, for about 47, 48 days. Um, so I was on a ventilator with the tracheostomy and so on. Uh, so I was out of it. I mean, you know, with lots of slangy ways of describing it. I was knocked out. I was out of it. I was dead to the world. Uh, I was all those things. And so didn't know anything at all about it. And um, only the only way in which I can piece some of it together is because uh, for quite a few of us who, who've been in intensive care like that, the nurses write us what's called a patient diary. Very patient it is. Um, it's a diary that the intensive care nurses write every morning having looked after you the night before and so I can sort of read this thing so it's rather weird because I'm looking at myself through the eyes of the nurses. And we can now read it as well because you have today published an extraordinary book if I may say so it's called Many Different Kinds of Love A Story of Life, Death and the NHS and in it is that patient's diary. Wonderful excerpts from those nurses who appeared behind beside your bed day in, day out, um, which I want to talk about in a moment. But the thing that really got me was the letter that your friend, a GP, wrote after you'd been taken to hospital, helping you piece it all together about what happened the, the day you went into hospital. I mean, you were so ill, weren't you? The oxygen levels, they're supposed to be around 95 in your body. Yours were 58? Yes. Uh, these are just numbers, of course. But when a doctor tells you, that um, the figures read that really you shouldn't have been conscious, it sends a bit of a chill through you. As it happens, it's a bit of a revisitation for me because 
uh, I have a, an underactive thyroid and it went undiagnosed for about 11 years. And I can remember appearing in front of a doctor with the blood test in front of him. He had the figures and he said, technically, you're dead. I remember the American doctor and he said, technically, you should be in a torpor. So this is, it's been a bit of a kind of deja vu, really, is actually seeing this letter from Dr. Katie um, that she wrote to me to sort of try and remind me what had happened because I didn't really know the fact that I was so near to the e to the edge. I mean, it really does feel as if I was standing on a cliff edge and maybe minutes, I don't know, but certainly hours and I'd have gone beyond a point at which you can pull the body back. So the fact that then uh, that, that night that um, she and my wife, Emma tested me and um, the moment Dr. Katie saw it, she said, take Michael to the hospital. And in my mind, I wanted to resist it because I was finding it difficult enough to get to the loo and back. And so I thought, get to the hospital. How do you mean? And uh, Katie was most insistent and told me to bump down the stairs on my bum and get into the car. And um, our daughter came in the back and um, we whisked me to the to the hospital. I didn't do any whisking. I was more kind of weak and feeble. Mm. It must be extraordinary for you to have read that letter because I mean I read it and it made me cry. I mean it literally made me cry. It's so it's very simple. It's an account of what happened, but it was unbelievably powerful. And for you to know that that was happening to you must have been extraordinary. Mm, I think the bit that gets me, I, I I don't think I cried. I've cried about a lot of things, but not that particular bit. Was the way she describes me sitting at the bottom of the stairs with my head in my hands. Um, I can't quite remember it, but seeing that, as it were, transmitted back to me in Dr. Katie's words and the fact that she, at that moment, thought of the fact of my own son dying, that the way these things connect, it's, um, well, they do. It's, it's, it's the way the human mind works, isn't it? It's like, I often think of it as like a corridor that you say one thing and then a whole corridor of emotions opens up that connects one thing to the next, you know, I've already connected um, me to my hype, you know, when I had my underactive thyroid. So it's the same thing. And so I think it happens to doctors all the time because they spot something and think, wow, that's just like that thing that happened then and then and then. And of course, that's the power of diagnosis, which she was doing. She could see that I was in a, in a, in a precarious state, let's say that. And I think what really struck me as well was your description or her description, actually, um, of, of the people, you know, when you get to hospital and everybody just piling in on you. And, and you say that it's the hands around you, isn't it? I mean, you describe how you were really gasping for oxygen, but it's the hands that then lay on you and from then whisk you away for what turns out to be months. Yes. And um, you have to say that uh, part of the thing, when you're, when you're short of oxygen, I think people who get short of oxygen when they climb Everest say these sorts of things, is that you are a bit lightheaded. And so you're not, in my case, at any rate, I wasn't really appreciating the gravity of the situation. I just thought, oh, well, I'm, I'm in safe hands now. I'll probably be all right. So when doctors asked me questions, I just sort of felt quite I can only th I'm sort of doing a shrug movement here because I sort of felt quite shruggy. You know, I just sort of thought, oh, right, okay. Um, and so th they're slapping a mask on me. That's good. I'll be able to breathe. Oh, yes, I'm breathing. Um, 
because I didn't feel by then, I think I'd gone over the top. So you don't, I didn't feel terrible. Um, some people have described absolute agony of breathing because you have this thing called ground glass. It's, it's what the doctors call it even uh, in the lungs. And also if you've got blood clots, which I did, well, that's usually painful as well. But I don't remember the experience of pain. All I've got is this memory of kind of lightheadedness and surrounded by people saying they're going to do this and will I do that? And uh, if we put you on a ventilator, you know, that sort of thing. So um, it's, it's a mismatch between the gravity and my feeling about it. I loved in your book, The Patient's Diary, which you've already talked about, but I didn't know, and you don't actually make it clear until later on what it is, but it is, it, it's an account through the, through the weeks that go on from the people who come and sit by your bedside. And what is wonderful, really struck me, was they'd all come, they weren't normally there, were they? They were people who were doing it on top of their normal jobs. They'd come from, they were physiotherapists, speech therapists, people from Great Ormond Street, this whole array of, this army of people, it felt like, who just descended to help. Well, yes, I mean, let's remember, if you're an intensive care nurse, you've been trained for a variety of things, to, to monitor people in a desperate state of health or unhealth. Um, but more than that, you've also had training in the fact that the person that you're going to be caring for all night might die at any moment. So you've had a form of bereavement training because you're, you're expressing a form of devotion with this care, but that person just may give out. Or it may be that you say goodbye to them and come back in the next day and they're not there because they've died. And so, you know, in intensive care nurses have a training to help them deal with this. But the people, as you say, who were recruited and came in, they hadn't had that training. You know, if you're a, a physio, you don't normally expect somebody to, as it were, die on your watch. So it was a huge burden in some cases for some of those nurses looking after me. I mean, the consultant has described uh, I think there's a, an article in the paper about it, but I've heard him describe it. This is Professor Hugh Montgomery, that there would be people on their telephones, patients this is, and then they've gone out for 15 minutes and come back and the person had popped off. And part of that was because the nature of COVID that some people don't quite understand, uh, but they now do, but even now people talk about it, because it's a respiratory illness, people didn't realise that it was also causing clotting the way Hugh Montgomery's put it is that when they did the first blood test, they couldn't get the blood out because the blood was, as in his words, sticky. So in those very early days, people were dying of strokes and uh, emboli you know, uh, not, uh, aneurysms. Um, and, and in my case, clots in, the, um, in my pulmonary blood vessels. And so uh, it can happen very, very quickly. Now, those nurses you know, who, who came on, as you described, that's a huge burden to, to carry. 42% of the people in my intensive care ward died. So if you think about that, that you come on, and so four out of the 10, or it, in fact, the ward was supposed to hold 11, but it held 24. So, you know, that was 10 people in that ward could die in the time that you were on. You know, we're, we're, we're separated from death. Certainly people who live in the cities are. I mean, I suppose country people see animals die more often than we do. Um, but that is a great exposure to something that, you know, more often than not, quite young people 
uh, nurses, a woomph just suddenly into the middle of it, in the middle of lockdown and suffering those privations at the same time. Huge burden. What was it like reading your patient's diary back? Very moving and at the same time quite funny because, you know, it's how can I put it? You're a slab, really. I mean, you're, you're virtually, in, the, in one sense, a bit like in a morgue. You're stretched out there and not responding. And then there are these tubes and things going into you. Um, and they're dealing with you. They're mopping you up, dealing with whatever they're having to do. Um, and it feels like you're totally at their, you're at their mercy, put it that way. And you are at mercy in all senses of the word. And then when they start talking about, oh, I support Derby and, you know, I know you support <laughs> Arsenal. I mean, it's just like, it's so lovely and banal. I mean, it's so ordinary. And then again, when they mention the fact that they were reading one of my books to their kids the night before, <clears throat> it's, it's so, I don't know, it just feels, it must have been so extraordinary to sit there, you know, the night before you've got your children, you read, we're going on a bear hunt and you come in and then there's this bloke lying there all kind of, white and on the edge, you know, with these tubes. That, that's sort of quite strange. But then also the bit where they describe the fact that I get agitated and a bit frantic. And I got no memory of this at all. So the idea that I was sort of waving my arms about and getting agitated, I feel a bit sort of distressed about because, you know, people in that situation, they, they're quite dangerous. You know, look, you can see my great long arms. <laughs> you know, I'm six foot three or whatever. I'm six foot two and a half. And so these arms coming out, they must have gone, look out, look out, you know. And also that I think they said to Emma that I was delirious. Um, now, some people remember that delirium and they get quite troubled by it. But in my case, it's just rather weird and quite nice dreams. But yes. I loved the, the mentions, and there were a lot of them, and the, most of them were about we're going on a bear hunt, which I myself read to my children, I know virtually off by heart, but that does run through the patient's diary. All these different people who are coming and sitting by your bed, and you can imagine them, the connection they clearly had with you. The language I thought was really interesting because people talk about the fight, keep fighting, keep going. The, you know, it's, it's, there's a sort of real battle, isn't there? But presumably you didn't feel like you were... There was, there was no, for you, it wasn't about fighting. It was your body just taking over. Absolutely. And I sort of tried to come to terms with this a couple of times in the book. <laughs> so uh, if I just jump ahead to having an echocardiogram and uh, the guy said, oh, your left ventricle's doing well. And part of me goes, yeah, right. Mm, well done. That's, that's my left <laughs> ventricle. And you think, well, no, that's part of the autonomic system. I don't have any control over that. But then there's another little bit of you that wants to hang on and go, well done. Yeah, that, that is my left ventricle doing really well. So there is a weird way that we have this conscious mind where we can congratulate ourselves or kick ourselves for getting things wrong. And then meanwhile, there's this whole, not just one system, but all these different systems, the hormonal system and the, the antibodies and the nervous system, the respiratory, you know, digestive, and they're all pumping away doing this stuff. And when a doctor says, well, you know, you've got to fight on, you know, and you think, well, not really much I can do about it. So, I, I mean, it's lovely the nurses say that. And there's part of me going, well, and I did, you know, my kidneys and liver, I think at one point were in trouble, you know, so well done the kidneys. But, the, you know, I can talk to my kidneys, but they don't exactly answer, do they? You know what I mean? So it's, it's a sort of funny thing where you, on the one hand, I do feel proud that I survived. I mean, at the same time, fully aware of all these 
tens of thousands of people who haven't. But really, it's sort of part of me thinks, well, it isn't actually to do with me. It's probably more to do with a lack of combination of genes and that um, I haven't been eating too badly or something. Yeah. What what really struck me though was I mean you were when you were in hospital it was the first lockdown it was the the first peak and there was that sense of you wouldn't know about it because obviously you were unconscious but the complete shock that was gripping the country I was going in and doing the news every day and the death tolls were mounting in France and Italy and it was creeping nearer and nearer here um, but what you really get a sense of just from reading that patient's diary is the the effort that was going on in the hospitals. And I suppose just simply the kindness of strangers, the love and the attention and the care that they gave to you. And I'm sure that was added to because they knew who you were and, you know, you were part of their lives. But it, there was a real sense of the kindness of strangers. Yeah, I think the, the way I've written about it is that it, it struck me at one point that, you know, if, if you're a parent then you always go the extra mile when your kid has got a temperature or if they've hurt themselves and you sit up with them all night. You, you do these things. And it's sort of part of parental love, care, nurture. We, you know, we've got all these words for it, but that's, that's what we do. And at some point, I think I've forgotten where on the timeline, I suddenly had this feeling that these people had treated me as if they were my parents, that they had expressed the same devotion and care. But <laughs> parents, we know our kids, we do it because there's this incredible attachment that you can't even find words for. But these people seem to be doing the same thing. And most of them had, I know we've got some in the book there of people who did know who I was, but most of them didn't know who I was. Some of them had come from, you know, had only been in the country for a short while. I can remember, you know, when I was conscious, nurses from, Brazil, uh, China, um, the Caribbean, from some of the African countries, Uganda and so on. Um, and, you know, they, I could hear from their accents. They, they hadn't been in the country that long. So they, they, these were strangers sort of doubly so in that sense. They were strange to this country for them. And here's this stranger and they're caring for this person in the same way. It's not the same way, in a very similar way as we as parents behave. And I've sort of struggled with this in my mind that, you know, would I be able to do that physically and mentally? Would I be able to treat somebody as if they were my child in the same way as I've treated my own children, you know? And uh, wow, you know, it seems to be such a tough call. And we ask it of these people who, you know, I suppose I see them as, as very young. There's some, some of them are younger than my grown up children. So I sort of think of them as, Goodness me, you know, it was only 15 years ago you were a little kiddie. Um, so that's, I find that overwhelming, really. It's, uh, it's that thing of, of what feels like parental care gets to me, you know. Have you met any of them or spoken to any of them since? Just one. It was a pure coincidence, actually. I was sitting in the garden outside the Whittington Hospital and we were doing a bit of filming um, for, for a, a programme uh, on ITV. And um, uh, while I was talking to Professor Hugh Montgomery, a woman went past and then came back and went, oh, no, oh, no, it's Mr Rosen. And I went, yeah, and I thought maybe it was someone had seen me on my videos or with their kiddies or something like that. And she said, I was in, in the ICU. I, uh, my name's Margie, and uh, I think she's in the book, actually. Um, 
And it was very emotional because um, I think quite literally the last time she had seen me, I was in a sort of 50-50 situation. And I've seen film of me and I do look, you know, pretty morgue-like. I mean, it, there's no colour in my face at all. and it's, My face is very blank and motionless and I'm staring and my sort of mouth's a bit open. And, and there was I sitting on a park bench uh, chatting away to Hugh Montgomery. So I, I guess it was almost a bit of a shock. I mean, a bit like a kind of visitation. I don't know whether you know, but in folk song, there's this song that's quite, quite powerful called The Unquiet Grave. And it's where the, you know, it's a visitation from a, 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 like a ghost, if you like. And I sort of, I've had a little flash at that moment that maybe she thought for a very brief moment that it was a ghost, you know, why not? I mean, so, I mean, I don't believe in ghosts, but, you know, plenty of people do, but it must've been quite surprising for her at any rate at that point. And she did gasp, but we, we patched it up. I didn't horrify her too much. How extraordinary that when you said that, I mean, goosebumps. I mean, that must have been yeah, an extraordinary moment for her. And I suppose you have no recollection of it. You, um, what also is very moving is you talking about your family and your wife, Emma, um, and the fact that, that that lack of contact, that gulf, the sort of everything stops, doesn't it? You're very cut off. And you can't message, you can't, you try and message and it comes out as gobbledygook because you can't see, you've got your glasses. Um, and that must be, we know how isolating it has been for people in hospital because you can't have visitors. That must have been unbelievably difficult for all of you. Yes. I, I mean, I, I had that very, very, the gulf is the word I've used. Yeah. I just had this sense that, I mean, we, we live not all that far from the Whittington Hospital. We're, we're only probably... I don't know, maybe a mile and a half, two miles, something like that. So it does feel just over there when you're sitting in the hospital and, you know, quite often quite near it and go past it because it's just an archway. So you see the buildings if you're just driving that way, uh, walking. And um, I just remember thinking that it's so near but so far and having that sense of the gulf. And also you're surrounded by strangers. You, you Normally in normal daily life, you see your loved ones you know, pretty usually once a day, if not more. Um, and in hospital, you're completely separate from them. And then that was doubled because there were no visits. So instead of having a, a daily visit or even a weekly visit, there were no visits. So trying to then make the phone work became absolutely critical. And, and of course, I was ill, so my thumbs weren't kind of working. And then I got my eye knocked out by the the, the blood clots. So uh, it was really sort of quite frustrating and also disturbing. I sort of worried that maybe Emma thought that I didn't want to ring her or something like that and that she didn't know. So you sit there mithering over things like that and it's not rational, but, you know, I, I remember saying to the nurse, does Emma know that I'm trying to get through sort of thing? Um, and it was a lovely breakthrough when finally, you know, we got FaceTime to work and we could actually sit there and, you know, and talk to each other and say goodnight to each other and so on. Um, but then hospital, it, it is quite a lonely place, particularly if you haven't got visits. And I think it's still giving me problems now. So here we are months and months later. And if, as I go to sleep at night, or sometimes if I'm just sort of on my own in the house, I get a kind of reverberation. It's as if somehow or other it sort of reaches out, that sense of the isolation, the loneliness, and I think another word I've used is confinement because, you know, in a way you're confined. It, it was the word, after all, that used, it was used to describe uh, women having babies in hospitals. It used to be called confinement. And I suddenly remember thinking, 
I feel confined. It's not, it's nobody's fault. They're all doing their best, but I feel confined. And then, um, and then I get that now. I sort of sometimes suddenly get a feeling back straight back to there. And I, I do feel a bit creepy about it. So it sort of feels almost worse in retrospect than it was then. What do you mean? What well, I don't understand why you feel it. Why do you think you feel it now? Um, well, some people say it's a form, a mild form in my case of post-traumatic stress is that you've, I've been through this trauma and then when you're lying there and you come out of it and you're conscious, when I was conscious, um, I felt very uh, kind of restricted because I couldn't walk, I couldn't move, I, cu I couldn't stand up and I knew that. I could just feel my whole body was 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 like that. And then there are these very kind strangers, but... They are strangers. Now that goes on for several weeks until I could finally walk and, and all that. So I, the memories are like flashbacks, yes? So, I mean, obviously when people talk about post-traumatic stress, it's, it's usually from terrible explosions and accidents. And, you know, we, we hear about these things with army veterans and so on. And um, in my case, it's milder than that, but you're, I'm still getting these flashbacks to something that's sort of just below the trauma level. Do you see what I mean? Mm. But also because this thing of not being able to walk or to stand up, that, that I think, um, that was very difficult to cope with in, in that moment that, that the top half of me was, was moving about, but all this, it, it, I couldn't, it was, and when they got me to stand up, it, it seemed like impossible that I would ever walk again. So now just to talk about that, that memory that I thought I will never walk again, that's, a, that's quite a tough feeling to have. And even though I, I am and I'm walking about and, uh, and so on, I can go back to that moment and feel bad. You talk a lot about identity in, in, in the book and how it changed so dramatically from being somebody who was incredibly active to suddenly being exactly that, you know, confined to your bed, unable to walk. From hospital, you go to rehab um, where they do teach you to walk again. And there's that, there's a wonderful moment where you write about the, the flip-flopping in your mind, really. It's either I could stay in bed or I could work hard. I could stay, and that, that's almost the feeling, your, your head is sort of saying, just stay in bed, it's easier. Um, it was clearly very, very difficult, the rehab and, and just getting yourself going again. It was a long haul. Mm. And, and also, um, I didn't believe them. I mean, it's a terrible thing to say. And if they, they're hearing this, um, they, well, they know anyway, because I used to laugh about it. But when they said that I would walk out of the rehab hospital, I just thought they were doing kind of making encouraging noises. Do, do you know what I mean? That they were just being kind to sort of encourage me. Because at each stage, I would say to myself, um, this is the level I'm at. So when the very first time I stood up and clung on to this kind of Zimmer frame, I thought, oh, well, I'm, that's what a, that's, I'm a Zimmer frame person. So I could picture in my mind a person who's in our neighborhood who goes around with a Zimmer frame and wheels. And I thought, oh, I'm one of those, am I? And then when they got me to be in the wheelchair and I thought, this is brilliant, because the upper part of my body was sort of working okay. And so I wheeled myself to the window and I had this lovely, for the first time, I sort of saw the outside world and there was a woman on her balcony watering her flowers. And I thought, oh, right, I'm a wheelchair person. That's okay. You know, it's a, that's fine. 
And then they gave me my stick, um, which I called Sticky McStick Stick. And um, I thought, wow, this is brilliant. You know, with a huge effort, I can walk for about five steps. Good old Sticky McStick. So I'm a stick person. So at each stage, I kind of rationalized where I'd got to. Um, but in a way, I never believed that I would be the state I'm in now, that I would be able to walk. Um, and the physios and occupational therapists were just incredible. I mean, they know what to do. They use all their knowledge and care and kindness. You know, I thought some of it was just amazing. I mean, it was standing in a gym trying to throw a balloon. You know, I couldn't because the, or the whole of the core had gone. Do you see what I mean? So to throw a balloon, you have to use the core muscles, your, your abs, right? So I, they, they didn't exist. So I couldn't throw a balloon. Or when I did, I remember Ashma saying, well done. I thought, what do you mean, well done? I've thrown a balloon, <laughs> you know. And then as a laugh, she would sort of throw things sort of at me, which I had to catch, you know. And so I started teasing her and saying how cruel she was, you know. Um, but, I mean, they were, they were unbelievable. Um, and so knowledgeable about the bits of you that are working and not working and what you need to do. Um, and as I say, they took me from literally not being able to stand up to walking out of the building in three weeks. You, yeah, and it's amazing to read about it. I mean, you talk about how you would you were you had to learn to walk three times, which you because of an early an accident when you were younger, and you know you thought this was possibly too much for one person in one life. Um, but you do use humour very you know beautifully in this book, and. I, I found myself, you know, in awful moments and then you suddenly laugh out loud. And I love the moment you said something about how you had to get your blood pressure up and you're in the rehabilitation center and you say, you write, it's okay. They're about to bring me the daily mail. That'll do the job. Um, and how, how important was humor? Were you able to hold on to some humor throughout all this? Yes. Um, I mean, I'm somebody who does see the absurd in the everyday. That's sort of in, is in my family, really. It's, it's what my parents used to do, you know, laugh at, at things that were quite often sort of things that were adversities, if you like. I, mean, I can remember, I mean, for what it's worth, there was some old secondhand piano that was in the house and they tried to get it out and it took them about a week to get it out of the house. And it became a kind of huge family joke, this piano. Lots of people do it. I'm not suggest anything unique about it. But so I do look and find absurd things. So, um, and quite often I'd sort of focus on that. So, you know, when somebody's telling me you've got blood clots in your blood vessels, well, then I sort of, and, and yes, the doctor said, it's all right, you'll digest them. And then I found myself immediately thinking of, well, a blood clot is a kind of scab. I know it's disgusting this for some people. Sorry about this, but I mean, that's what it is. It's a piece of clotted blood. So I suddenly thought, oh, I've got scabs in my pulmonary artery, you know. And then I suddenly remembered, as you do as a child, you know, disgustingly, we used to pick our scabs and eat them. And I'm sorry about this, but, you know, <laughs> while you're lying there, everything's all a bit visceral and body-like, isn't it? And so I remember thinking, oh, I see. Am I eating the scabs in my pulmonary artery, you know. So I suppose there's this sort of way in which my mind does sort of think through the sort of absurdities. And, uh, or even just a phrase, you know, the way doctors kept saying, you were very poorly. It's a little bit of a euphemism. I mean, I suppose what they meant to say is you nearly died, mate. But they went, you were very poorly. And then the next doctor would come back, come and say exactly the same thing. So it's almost like a, 
a sort of folk word in the, in the medical profession that you don't tell people they nearly conked out or anything like that. You're not blunt about it. You just go, you were very poorly. <laughs> so I, I, I like all that. It keeps me going. And also, you know, I did genuinely call the echocardiogram an echo cardigan the first time. And I just thought, you know, oh, that's such fun. I've got an echo cardigan, you know. So, yes, I do find these odd things. Will you, will you give us a, just give us a sense of, just give us a, read something from your book because it's so beautifully written and it'd be lovely to hear. I meet the consultant who is in charge of intensive care. He tells me it was carnage. People were dying all round me. I wasn't dying, but they didn't know if I would wake up. He tells me about COVID-19 and his words create a picture of a spike from the virus attaching itself to a protein in us. He demonstrates it with his finger hitting his fist. The virus seems so clever. It takes advantage of how our bodies react going through our lungs and wrecking organs all over us. It's hard not to think of it as having intent, that it's doing things because it wants to. Tiny viruses with enormous brains. I've looked at pictures of it, blue and spiky. In my mind, it's become a wicked hedgehog. Wonderful, wonderful description. When, when did the consultant, when was that? Was that when you were still in intensive care or...? No, that was afterwards, part of making the film. And I met up with uh, Hugh Montgomery um, a couple of times. Well, I've met for a sort of debrief, you know, what happened, what was wrong. Um, and then also for, for the purpose of making this film. So, um, and also actually, as it happens, a Radio 4 programme. Uh, we did a programme called The Reunion. And um, I met him, as it were, on air then as well. For someone who, whose mind is obviously, you know, your mind is very busy, you're constantly thinking, as you were saying, and you're constantly dwelling on things and twisting, you know, you're obviously playing with things a lot in your mind. To have that time when nothing was happening and to be lying there in the bed on your own when you were, you know, obviously when you were a bit more, bit better, it must be very, very difficult to have so much time to dwell on things. Yeah, and it's a bit of a mystery to me because... Um after you've come out of intensive care, your, your, your body is full of what the doctors have called mind-changing drugs. You know, I, I come from the 60s, so, you know, people talked about those things in a very different way. I can assure you I never, ever touched any of them, <laughs> but I promise you I didn't. Uh, I was quite sort of puritanical about it as it happens. But so suddenly the doctor's telling me, well, you know, you may have a lot of delirium because you, your body was full of mind-changing drugs. And I remember thinking, are you, are you telling me something? Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, part of the problem is, is as you come out and it, it seems possibly attached to intensive care, possibly to COVID itself, um, brain fog. So when I think back to those moments, and Emma affirms this, is that not only could I not understand certain things, but also I immediately forgot them when I was told. So there's a whole period when my mind is like very slack and kind of not really holding it together. So that's, if you like, through June, July and into August. And even now there are funny moments where Emma said, well, I did just say that to you. So, well, that may just be, you know, the fact that I'm 74. So it's hard to isolate which, which causes what. But so I can remember lying there and going through things just over and over again, trying to grasp it. And then as it happens, it was one of my children, I think, said to me at one point, what did you do all day in there? And me not being able to answer the question, going kind of, well, 
I don't really know. And then I did go off on a kind of muse about what did I do? Just lie there. And then I do remember things. I mean, I did write a children's book in my head. I wrote a children's book called Rigatoni the Pasta Cat. And I, I, I lay there and I kind of plotted it out. And then I, I wrote some of the dialogue. I say, right, it's a bit of a joke, really. It's, it's just my brain. My hand's not working at all. But I, as it were, rehearsed the book. So when I came home, it's almost one of the first things I did. I just thought, well, can I actually write this? And so I sort of went back to me lying in the bed and recapitulated the story I told myself of Rigatoni, pasta cat. It's a cat who likes pasta more than cat food. And so it's desperate when his owners go away and the owners haven't told the new person looking after him that he likes pasta. So he gets desperate. So actually, funnily enough, it's a little bit like some of the feelings I had in hospital. You know, you're desperate to get home. You're desperate for the taste of hummus. I am anyway. Um, and so, you know, by and large in hospitals, you don't get hummus. And it was difficult <laughs> for Emma to send food in, particularly perishables, you see. And so, <laughs> so I found myself sort of, if you like, channeling my longing for hummus in the hospital to Rigatoni wanting his pasta but I didn't know that until I actually wrote it. So writing is always a discovery, as people say. But uh, yeah, so I, I made up Rigatoni the pasta cat. Why I came up with Rigatoni, I'm not quite sure. But anyway, because <laughs> it's not very common pasta in this country. But anyway, Rigatoni. So anyway. It, it's extraordinary because it is nearly a year to the day since you fell ill and went to hospital. Um, a year on, how are you? I mean, are you... I, I can't imagine you're fully recovered because is one ever fully recovered from something as, as traumatic as that? Um, well, something seemed permanent. So I've lost a lot of the sight from my left eye. It's fogged is the best way to describe it. I've lost most of my hearing from my left ear. Technically, um, if, if I, get quite, I get off on some of this technical stuff. Um, I've got a narrow, very narrow band of megahertz that I can hear. If you shouted 99 in my ear with a woman's voice, I can hear that. But if you went 99, I wouldn't hear it. Um, so that's my left ear gone. Um, the feeling in my toes has gone. So I have a very strange kind of relationship with my feet because they're there and I can sort of feel things sort of like I can feel the roughness in the sock, but at the same time, it feels as if there's a kind of water cushion between my feet and the ground all the time. So that's rather strange. Um, there was a knock-on effect that um, my toenails fell out. I think that's because COVID attacks the capillaries, the very sort of smallest blood vessels, part of the, the stickiness of the blood. So my big toenails decided to fall off and there was just sort of bloody bits there instead. And then one of the toenails decided to grow into my toe rather than above it. So I've had to grapple with a beastly ingrowing toenail. Um, I get breathless, uh, I think more than I used to. Uh, we live in Muswell Hill, so as the name suggests, there is a hill there. And um, <laughs> I kind of, if we go out with Emma or my son or my oldest son, uh, we sometimes try and push it. And I have actually climbed Muswell Hill. I have actually done it, which is, you know, Muswell Hill is about 100 metres high. So I've, I've done that. But um, I do get weak. I got, I've got what I've called in the book alternate day syndrome. <laughs> you know, one day I'm sort of, way, yeah, no, it's, I'm zooming about. And the next day I'm kind of lying on the sofa, just sort of staring at the wall. And I do get these, um, 
these flashbacks that's that's sort of the the worst thing i think sort of mentally it's it's kind of very discomforting that i sort of i have to consciously say to myself don't be sorry for yourself and don't allow yourself to dwell on these those moments when you were in that precarious situation so i sort of have to do a kind of it's if i had a dial I'm looking at the sound dial there, you see. I'm thinking, well, over to the left, it's I'm in the hospital, and over to the right, I'm walking about in Muswell Hill. So I have to swing the dial around to the kind of the optimism bit. It is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's amazing hearing your your account of what it's done and a whole year of it. We've all lived through a year of this pandemic now. And and for you, somebody who had it so early on. And just as you know, as we draw to a close, your your thoughts. Your book is called Many Different Kinds of Love. I mean, your thoughts about the people in the hospitals who have been working, not just when you were there, we know they've had a very, very difficult time recently as well. Your thoughts about them? Almost impossible for me to put into words. When you're aware that, I'm aware obviously that Emma saved my life, but then the moment I'm thinking of Dr. Katie and then, all the nurses, all the doctors, all the people who brought me porridge in the morning or were cleaning around the bed and, and so on and were dealing with this, you know, in Hugh Montgomery's word, carnage. You know, it, I, I can't find it. The word gratitude is just pathetic, really. It's too thin a word. It, you know, it's a form of love that I have for them, that they did that, that they did those things and were so kind about it. Um, and also it's something you're, you're kind of on a, um, a production line a little bit, you know, you're coming in, in this state of huge ill health, you might dip down and so on. And then you come off intense care into another ward, then into rehab, uh, and then into uh, physios who come and see you in the home. And indeed the district nurses who came around to deal with my tracheostomy, which decided not to close. That was fun. Um, and, uh, the, it's the way in which you're being passed tenderly from one to the next that I have a sense that you're being passed through the system. It is the national health service stroke system that passed through it. And then if you like, you're sort of sent out into the world saying, well, now cope. But that's what they did. They said to me, say, for example, in the rehab hospital, they said, we can't send you home until you can climb some stairs. And I remember thinking, but I can't climb stairs. That's impossible. And, and, the, and their insistence on it is sort of making you ready for the world. Um, it's a bit like, you know, they, they, they talk about prisons, don't they? They say, you know, they're not ready for the world, the prisoners. It's a little bit like that in the sense that you're being released from prison. Discharge is the hospital word. You're being discharged. And uh, I just feel sort of, it's not why did they do it, but how did they do all that? So I sort of carry this, it's, it's not a burden, but I carry this rucksack full of emotions towards them um, and picking them off in my mind, you know, oh, there, there's, there's, Mr. there's Mr. Montgomery, oh, there's Ashmore, oh, there's Doreen, the nurse who propped me up. Oh, yeah, otherwise I'd have fallen backwards. So I see them all in front of me. Um, and it's a lovely feeling, really, to have been cared for like that. I mean, incredible. And then, you know, such, they've been doing it for thousands of people, you know, and experiencing all sorts of, I, I dread to think, terrible feelings about the people they've lost and, and so on, you know. 
I mean, that obviously leads me beautifully into uh, asking you what I would love, you know, a year ago, when we were talking about poems to be read on the BBC for the pandemic, to lift people's spirits during the pandemic. And we talked about yours and somebody I remember in the newsroom said, he's just been taken into hospital. I know he's been taken into hospital. And I remember thinking, could I read it? Should I read it? Would that be inappropriate? And we asked your family and I read it on Radio 4. Your family had said, had agreed to it and said they were happy for us to read it. And it was unbelievably emotional on the day. It was the day of Clapford Carers. And um, so we read it, I read it and the response was huge. So would you read it for us? Because I would love personally to hear you read it. Your tribute to, to the people in the NHS. Uh, and thanks, uh, Sophie. Thanks so much for reading it then yourself and also for this interview. Thank you. So here's the poem. These are the hands that touch us first. Feel your head, find the pulse and make your bed. These are the hands that tap your back, test the skin, hold your arm, wheel the bin, change the bulb, fix the drip, pour the jug, replace your hip. These are the hands that fill the bath, mop the floor, flick the switch, soothe the saw, burn the swabs, give us a jab, throw out sharps, design the lab. And these are the hands that stop the leaks, empty the pan, wipe the pipes, carry the can, clamp the veins, make the cast, log the dose and touch us last. Wonderful. Michael Rosen, what is fabulous to hear you read that. And uh, what a tribute indeed. And you would never have known when you wrote that just how much you needed those people a year ago. Um, thank you so much for talking to us. Your book, Many Different Kinds of Love, A Story of Life, Death and the NHS is published today. I have one minor complaint. It was so good. I read it in one sitting. That was it. I couldn't put it down. I, I forgot everything I had to do that day. I just read it. It's wonderful. And it made me laugh and it made me cry. And uh, it's beautifully written. And it's so lovely to see you better and uh, on the mend and, uh, and with us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sophie. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.